There was a TV series called Lost. It was a story about survivors of the Oceanic Flight 815 that were about a thousand miles off course uh, when their plane crashed onto a mysterious island. Um, Actually, 48 people on the plane survived, but there were really, in the series, about 14 main characters. And the story was about how these main characters survived their lostness. And what you find as the series moved on each season was that every one of the ones that survived um, had a secret. And the lostness they had brought that secret out. I thought of that series a little bit when I think about Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. He wrote a series of stories, and we're going to look at one of them today. It's a, it's a story or a series of stories about lostness. Um, not geographical lostness like being lost on an island and, and, and you're a thousand miles away from being on course, but rather spiritual lostness, relational lostness. Not about people who have experienced a plane crash, but about people who have experienced a life crash. The word lost is used six times in Luke's gospel. Five of them are in our text in Luke 15, verses 2, 4, 9, 24, and 32. It's all throughout there. It's really the theme of the passage. The only other one is found in Luke 19.10. And what you're going to find is you read all of these stories that Jesus tells his audience and to us about losses is that he tells them because he's an expert on it. He knows and understands fully about what lostness really is all about. Um, In fact, so much so that it defines the mission from why he came into this world. The other usage of lostness outside of our chapter is the story of Zacchaeus, which ends with this statement that comes from the lips of our Lord in chapter 19 and verse 10. He says, For uh, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, that's why Jesus came. We couldn't do any better this morning and then to hear the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if we're going to understand lostness. Um, Just like everyone on Oceanic Flight 815, um, our lostness is revealing secrets about ourselves. And the main secret that everyone has about it is that we are spiritually estranged from God. And that's why the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 is about two sons. Because there is more than one way to express your losses. Everyone is equally lost. Every single one of us. We have crashed our life plane. We have all of us. But that expression of our lostness can take place in two different categories, two different types or kinds of lostness. And I want to unpack both of them this morning um, from this paragraph. There is, I'm going to call them or name them, younger son lostness and elder son lostness. But to understand what's going on and why Jesus tells the parable the way he does, you've got to understand who represents all the characters in the story. If you look back at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 and 3, it says the context of what Jesus was, who he was talking to when he gave these parables or stories of lostness. In chapter 15, verse 1, then tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So the first part of his audience are sinners, tax collectors, sinners, moral and social and spiritual outcasts. That's one aspect of his. And they are the younger son. They're represented by the younger son in the story of Jesus. 
The other group, verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They didn't like the fact that Jesus hung around with and had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. The second group are the religious people, the pious people, the ones that everyone looked up to in society, the ones that had, quote-unquote, their religious act together, the people that were devout and committed. And they are represented by the elder son in Jesus' paragraph. And you have to understand that because the father in the story is God, and, and namely God as he demonstrates who he is and what he's about through Jesus Christ in his life. So let me tell you the story Two things. I'm going to tell you the story and how it works its way out. And then I'm going to tell you or explain to you the contrast between the two types of lostness using the younger and elder son. So that's where we're headed. The story says there are a man, and you don't want to miss it. Don't run over it. He had two sons. Two sons, not one. And we usually think of the prodigal son being the younger one who did all that he did. But the Bible says he had two sons. And the way it worked in Middle Eastern culture is... Depending on how many sons you had, they divide up the inheritance. In this family's case, they had two. So the older son, whose responsibility it was after the father's death, was to take care of all the other children. People don't just, you know, today you grow up and you move away from your family. Nobody did that. Um, They just stayed in the same place, ran the business for the family, passed on the name, all added on rooms to the house to accommodate wives and children and such. But the two sons would divide up his father's inheritance, two-thirds to the older one because he had greater responsibilities, and one-third to the younger son. So the younger said comes to his dad, and you can see it in verse 11. There's a man, two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property. Now, he didn't say money because there wasn't really a lot of cash going on. And that wasn't the way you primarily measured wealth. He says, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Kenneth Bailey is a Middle Eastern uh, expert and commentator on the Bible. And when he looked at this verse about the younger son asking his father for the inheritance, here's what he notes. He said, to ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive was to actually say that you wished he was dead. So understand that it's no small thing. In fact, the original hearers of Jesus' parable would have been unbelievably and completely astounded that any son would have the nerve or the gall to ask his his father for the inheritance while he was still alive. We would say today, if it was a conversation going on today, it might go something like this. Father, I I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I I want the riches of the father, but I'm not interested in in a relationship with the father. And the son might even have gone so far in insulting his father to say, hey, uh, my relationship to you all all the time up until now has only been an end, a means to an end. I, I really have only ever wanted the things that you could give me. I mean, you can imagine, if you're a parent and you have a child, you can imagine ever having a conversation like that would completely break your heart. Kenneth Bailey, the Middle Eastern expert, goes on to say this, and the only proper response of a father to that kind of request to his son would be to drive him out of the house and even physically drive him out if he had to. According to Middle Eastern, that was such a huge insult socially and publicly and personally to the father that no father would have ever tolerated that. But let me tell you, that's not this father. See, this father, the Bible said, did this. 
So he divided his property between them. He actually did what the son asked him to do. The word property is not the usual word for land. It's used in chapter 15 and verse Uh, the one I just read to you, and also at the end of the text in verse 30, it's the Greek word bios from which we get the word biology. It means and represents your life. So let me read it to you with this translation just to tell you what the father and how he responded, how amazing it is. Read it like this. The father divided his life between them. So why did Luke put that word in there? Because he wants you to know what the father is feeling and thinking and what he has to do in order to to, uh, grant this kind of insulting request. You may not realize it, back in Middle Eastern times, in Jesus' day, land was everything. Land was your family, it was your business, it was your wealth. Um, it, was every, it was your identity. You, you were wrapped up as an Israelite in the land because it was part of the inheritance that God himself gave you. It was who you were. And to lose your land was to really almost literally lose yourself. I mean, to lose part of your land meant that you would lose your standing in the community because your standing in the community was based on how much land that you had. So if you just lose your land... I mean, you've economically just gone way downhill. People now disrespect you because you lost family land. You see, the son is asking for the father to tear his life apart so that he can have riotous living. He's asking his father to tear his standing in the community apart. He doesn't care financially what happens to his father. He doesn't care socially what happens to his father. The only thing the prodigal son really cares about is himself. And knowing this, feeling this, you'd think the father would completely reject such a request, but he doesn't. He actually, out of love, is willing to tear his own life apart for his son. See, this is how the father responds to such a rejection of love. Now, if we're honest, this is not how most of us would be, right? We would get mad. We would think about some way to retaliate. I mean, we would reject that son. In fact, a lot of us might just write him off completely. I mean, we would do everything we could, wouldn't we, to diminish the affection that we have for that person? You know why? Because if you love them too much, it hurts too much. And so we just say, we're just going to shut them out. We're not going to take the risk anymore of loving like that. And we would put them on the outside. But that's not this father. He's willing to make sacrifices to maintain his love for his son. He's willing to endure the agony, and it is for him, of rejected love. But that doesn't stop his son from doing what he has in mind, because if you look in verses 13 through 16, it starts off with this, that he took a journey into a far country, and here's what happens. He squanders his property, verse 13, with riotous living. If you want to know a little bit about riotous living, his elder brother knew what it meant, because at the end, when he's so mad, in verse 30... He talks about his brother and he says, your brother has devoured your property with prostitutes, he says. So amongst probably many other things, at least we know this, one of it was sexual immorality. And and that's what he, his father tore his life apart so his son could live this way. Imagine the feeling and the burden of that. 
And you can read the rest of those few verses in 14, 15, and 16. Eventually, after the Bible says a couple things, when all of his money is gone, it says when he has spent all, he finally comes to himself. And we're going to talk about that passage when it comes to brokenness next week. He finally comes to himself, and, he, and, and we would call today, he hit bottom. I mean, he's out in somebody's fields who's a Gentile most likely because Jews don't have pigs. So not only has he lost all of his money, he's lost all of his friends. He has no religiosity left. Now he's working for a Gentile. And of all things, he's unclean because he's in the pigsty, literally. He's so dirt poor that he wants to eat the things that they eat. That's his only option left. He realizes how stupid he's been. And he says and formulates a plan in his mind. And the plan is this, I'm going to go home. Now, he would say this, I will never be a son again. I mean, my, my sin against my father is so great. There's no way that he'll ever receive me. I'll never be a son again. But see, he comes, he says, here's what I'll say to him. Just make me your hired servant. Now, in a, in a, fa- a rich man's home, there were hired servants who were day workers. And, and they would come every day to the place you know, the father's house, and he'd have all kinds of jobs, and they would get paid one day at a time. And then underneath that were slaves, slaves who would never get paid anything because they were slaves. They were owned by the, the father or the master, and they would do his bidding no matter what. He, he doesn't say, he doesn't want to come back as a slave, but he, does, he says, Father, make me your hired servant. Why? Why does he not say, just make me a slave Make me a hired servant. Here's why. Because his plan is to come back and not just make a, an apology, but make restitution. See, if his dad hires him in as a day worker, see, his dad will pay him a wage. And he says, here's what I'll tell my dad. Let me just try to pay you back. Give me time. Over time, I'll work it back. And all the things I squandered and wasted and all the horrible things I did to you, then I'll try to get you, maybe you'll let me back in the family someday if I try to pay you back. So with this plan in mind, the younger son makes his way on the road back to the father's house, and you can read it again for yourself in verses 20 through 24. So he starts out, and he's going to get home, and he gets home, and his father runs to see him, and he begins to roll out his restoration plan. It was almost like today he had a PowerPoint slide. See, he got, here's the father, I've sinned against heaven. Slide number two. I'm no worthy to be called your son. Number three, make me your hired son. He's got it all mapped out in his mind. But so does his father. His father doesn't even let him hear the, he won't even hear the plan. He, he won't. Instead, the Bible says in verse 20 that his father ran, please look at this, and embraced him and kissed him. Can I tell you something? Again, Kenneth Bailey, patriarchs in Middle Eastern culture don't run. He said children run, teenagers run, and even at times women run. But owners of real estate People who are looked up to, especially if they're rich in the community, they don't run because to run, you had to, and you're long, you had to gird up your loins between your legs and you had to show your legs and run in in society and in public. Nobody of his stature ran. But again, this man does. He runs because he has abandoned all correctness, societal correctness. 
The Bible says that he embraces him. It means that he threw himself on the neck of his son. I mean, he doesn't even let him get the words, all the words out of his mouth. And then it says he kissed him. And that is such an important statement because only two other times in Luke's gospel does he talk about being kissed or kissing someone. The one is when Jesus said, remember when he went to the house of Simon the Pharisee and the woman comes in and at Jesus' feet, wipes his feet with her hair and her tears and all of that. And, and, and Simon the Pharisee, the older brother, he is disgusted by it. And Jesus begins to talk to him about that attitude. And he said, Simon, remember this? When I came in, you gave me no kiss. In other words, you know what a kiss is? It's a welcome. It means that I accept you. He said, this woman, who's the younger son, she kissed me, kisses me. She completely welcomes and accepts me into her life. He goes, but you gave me no kiss. In other words, the lack of a kiss meant you weren't welcome there. But you know what? Flip it over. The only other time it's used in Luke's gospel is when Judas leads the soldiers to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Luke 22, 47 and 48, Jesus says to Judas when he sees him, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And he did. He reached over and kissed Jesus. Meaning, see, the kiss was, I do accept you, I do welcome you, but it was a lie. It was a lie. This father, no lies, no pretenses, no falsehood. This father, publicly running down the street, throws his arms around his son and imagine what he looked like and smelled like. He doesn't care. Because when he kisses them, here's what he wants to communicate to him. And to all of us who are lost like he is, I want to welcome you. I want to accept you. I want you back in the family. And for having his father respond like that must have blown the younger son's mind. And so he says this, you're not going to be a hired servant for me. Here's what he says to his servants. You bring the best robe. You understand the best robe was the one hanging in the father's closet because it was his. When you wore the best robe, you were in the family. When you put the ring on his finger, it wasn't just, hey, look at the nice ring. No, it was the father's signet ring. It's the one that all contracts of business were made. And when you put your ring in the wax, you had the father's authority to do with his money and his business as he would do. He says, I give that to you. You can wear my signet ring. He says, put shoes on his feet. Can I tell you, slaves and hired people didn't wear shoes. Only sons wore shoes. You know what he says? You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to take a bath. You don't have to change your clothes. I want you back. I want you to know before you do any of those things, <coughs> you're welcome here. You're not going to earn your way back into this family. It's going to be all by my grace. See? See, that's the younger son and his lostness. But there's two sons. And the second son is the elder son. He comes in from the fields. You know why? Because he's been working hard. The other guy's been lousing and using all the money and property to do whatever he wants. And, but not the younger son. He's back there working, sweating. He's doing all the hard labor. He comes and hears 
the music and the dancing. He has to understand. And then he asks the servant, you know, what's happening? And, and, and he's furious when he finds out the answer. And without going to all the detail this week, can I tell you, the main reason he's furious, he lets us know, because in verse 29 says, you never gave me a young goat. A young goat was not the fatted calf. Far less. He goes, I've been here all my life. I've kept all your rules. I've done all that you've asked. I've worked really hard. I've never caused you public humiliation and shame. And and you never even gave me a far lesser. You never gave me the goat. And he comes home after squandering everything and living like that. And you're going to give him the fatted calf. Now, in culture on that day, meat was rarely eaten at a meal. It was considered a delicacy. And so if you had meat... Some special occasion had to be taking place. And if you killed the fatted calf, it wasn't just something you did for your house. He knew this, that the whole community had been invited. And so here's the father lavishing it up with some ritzy party, spending all kinds of money on this kid who had squandered everything. And he's mad, extremely mad. Today he would say it like this, how dare you use our wealth? Because you know what he says later on, everything I have is yours. So the guy knows the only thing left, the two-thirds of it's left, is really his. And now he sees his own dad using what would be left on this guy, his brother. How dare you use your wealth? I obeyed all your rules. I should have some say in how our resources are used. He would say, to, I have some rights over your stuff. How could you spend it on him of all people? See, verse 28 He insults his father. He's standing outside and his dad's talking to him and he won't go inside. And everybody knows it. They're having a party. They know the father's not there. The son's outside. He won't come in. On what he would say, his father's greatest day of his life is having his son back. He won't go in and join the party. He He won't go in with the rest of the family and the community. He is shaming his father. And he does so. Look at this in verse 29. Catch this. Verse 29 says, But he was angry, refused to go into his father, and his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. Look, he doesn't call him father. It's an insult. But he says, look. And the Greek word for look means to get your attention. And we would say it with a derogatory term like he would say. He would say, look, you. Imagine telling your dad that. That would be way too scary for me when I was growing up. Look, you, he he insults his father. He won't call him by his name. And he refuses to say father. But look how the father responds. Verse 30. Look at the next verse. But when this son of yours, he can't, by the way, not only can he not say father, but he can't even say his brother's name. He can't even say brother. This son of yours, it says, he says, I never disobeyed your command, but when your son of yours has come home, devoured your property, you killed the fatted calf for him, and he said to him, circle it, son, see, you won't call me father, but I still call you son, even though you're not acting like it. And, and in the next verse, it says even greater, he says in verse 31, my son, or our son again, but he changes the Greek word. And this is the word technon, which means it's a, it's a far more compassionate and endearing word. It means my child. In other words, he's, his, his son is so rude and, and insulting to him, but yet the father responds tenderly. That you're still my son. 
and he invites him in, he would say this if he was here today. He would say, I still want you at the feast. Almost every other father wouldn't allow you to come in after an act like that. But I still want you to come because you're my son. You see, there are two ways to be lost. Two ways in your relationship with God that you can be lost. Do you see both of them? And I want to say both of them. Do you see it? You see, you can be lost by being very, very bad. And that's the traditional view. But Jesus is turning the tables upside down because he wants us to know that, yes, you can be lost by being very, very bad, but you can also be lost by being very, very good. See, there is young son lostness and there is elder son lostness. The younger son lostness is easy for anybody to detect. It doesn't take an expert Pharisee to figure it out. Prostitutes, riotous living, wishing his dad was dead, ending up in the pig sty, selfish indulgence. Yep, everybody goes, obviously, that's sin. And everybody would go, of course he needs to be saved. Of course this guy, look how he's living. But Jesus says that you know, not only the younger son is lost, but the older son is lost. Both of them have to be have the father's welcome to come in the house. Did you see it? That the older brother stays outside and only the father can bring him in. Because the idea is that the bad son is lost in his badness and the good son is lost in his goodness. Each one of them, in their own different way, wanted what the father could give them, but not the father himself. Both were alienated from the father's heart. See, Jesus would say to us today that he, they used the Father to get status and wealth and the things they really loved. And one person did it by being very, very good, and the other person used it by being very, very bad. Which brings me to the definition of sin. Sin is this, anything you do to run away from the Father. Now, watch. But you can do that two ways. The younger son ran away from the Father by leaving. The elder son ran away from the father by staying. You see that? See, it's not just the people who commit the heinous outside sins, adultery, drunkenness, addiction, all, all the things that we all, okay, the worst, quote unquote. But it's also the people who never do those things. He says, they're both lost. The moral outsider the immoral outsider and the moral insider, according to Jesus, are both lost. The one realizes he is, and the other one realizes or thinks that he is not. My sister told me when I was there not too long ago that she had a, a lunch with some of the soccer moms because she was the soccer coach for the girls' team. And some of the moms of the children that she coached went out to lunch together, and she said, I wasn't really planning on this, but we got talking about religion, and most of my friends were Catholic. And she said, we started talking about um, people being good. And she said, my sister, with a friend of hers who's a neighbor of hers who's a Christian, um, who had cancer, severe cancer, almost lost her life from it, they, they developed a ministry together called Battle Bags. And, and um, Bob Gottwell has given 
um, Bibles from the Gideon to support this. And they have a bag and they go to hospitals and they give it to people who have cancer and it, it gives them things to help out and encourage them. And then one of those things is the Bible. And so she was going over um, all of those things with the people that she, the moms at the lunch. And she was saying, hey, we give the Bible up because everyone needs it because we're all sinners. And she made that statement. And she said to me, and I, can, I got her on the phone last night to make sure I was right about that. She said, when she said that, her friends piped up and said, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not a sinner. And by that, they meant, if you think I've done a lot of bad things, you're wrong. And so she said, the friend of her said, I'm a good person. And all the people at the table ch- chimed in. And then they repeated the laundry list, my sister called it. The laundry list of all the things that they'd done were good. They went to church. They helped others. They're handing out battle bags, some of them. And, and my sister said, well, that's all and good, but that doesn't change the fact that you've sinned. And, and so they finally came to the realization and admitted that sometimes, occasionally, they do a bad thing. And my sister said, Yes, you do. But see, that's the problem. All the good things you do don't wipe out the bad things. Someone still has to pay for the bad things. She said when she made that statement, all three of the moms got up, picked their stuff up, and walked out. My sister said, I don't know how we got on that conversation, and I don't know how that happened. And she said, Lance, I had to pay for lunch. No, she She said she couldn't believe it. And she told me just last week for the first time in one year that one of the ladies at the table that walked out finally talked to her again. But you know what I thought? People don't like to be told that they're lost, especially good people, see? And see, elder son, the elder son was not lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his goodness, see. I drove down the road one time. I was going on the highway, and I had gone this way many times, and it was during GPS. I'll have to give you that. So I was very confident in using my... I'm not good at directions normally, but how can you go wrong with a GPS, right? So I'm going down the road. I make a turn, and I thought, yes, I'm, I'm confident. I'm going the right way. It was not till like 30 or 40 minutes down the road that I realized... I was lost. I had no idea where I don't, the, the, the main turn, I, I, I was confident I made the right one. I didn't, I didn't. And I was lost. I had to finally recognize it and say, yes, you don't know where you're going. And I pulled over and I fixed, and, and I, oh, I made the wrong turn. But I really, I didn't know I made the wrong turn. And therefore, I, for the longest time, I didn't know I was lost. Can I tell you this? My confidence in thinking I made the right turn made me blind to my lostness. And that happens in so many people's lives that I talk to. People who try to be good people, and they have their list, and they pray, and they read their Bible occasionally, and they're moral people, and they're good citizens, and they, and they don't do any major sins or anything. But see, their goodness has blinded them to their lostness and need of a Savior. You see, there's two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. Two ways that people try to control God. One of them is by going off and living however you want to do. The other one is to be very moral, to be very religious, to read your Bible, to try to obey the Ten Commandments. 
to faithfully and regularly pray to God. See, Jesus, for those people, might be their rewarder. He might be their example. He might be a lot of things to them, but what he is not to them is their savior. People who are good avoid Jesus as savior by avoiding sin. They try to control God through what they do. And what they don't realize, and what perhaps some of you this morning watching or here in person, you don't realize is all your morality and all your obedience is getting in the way of what God really wants, and that is your life. See, what you want from God is what he can give you, but in truth, you don't want God himself. So hear me when I say this. Religious people obey God to get things from God. Gospel people obey God to get God, period. See, younger son, it's his badness that keeps him from the father. The elder son, it's his goodness that keeps him from the father. Let me say it plain to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not moralism or relativism. It's following Jesus or not following Jesus, period. The gospel doesn't divide the world into two groups, good and bad. The two groups are saved sinners and unsaved sinners. So the father goes outside the house and he welcomes in both sons, neither one deserved it, but he loved them both. He would say, you're both in trouble, but I want both of you in my house. You see, perhaps God brought you here this morning because you're in one of those two kinds of lostness. You would say, Pastor Walker, you don't have to convince me. I I know I'm a sinner. See, you have the younger son lostness. And you need to repent of what? The things that you do wrong that are not right in your life. But there are some of you, and and, and I've seen it over the years, and some of you come to Faith Baptist Church and you sit in these pews literally for years. And you are elder son lostness. The younger son repents of what he did not do right, but the older son needs to repent of the reasons why he did right. See, you do a lot of right things, but the reasons in your heart for why you do them, they're not about God. They're about you. And that's an expression of your lostness. So ask yourself as we close this morning, what kind of lostness are you in? The younger son lostness or the elder son lostness? And know this, Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and to save both kinds of lostness. And in his grace and mercy, he invites both to into his house if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would you be honest enough and humble enough this morning to say, Pastor Walker, I'm either a younger son lostness or elder son lostness. And it's hard because I'm thinking elder son lostness people are going to have a hard, much harder time with it. Because you're going to have to come to the realization that you might be being kept from the kingdom of heaven, from eternity with God, 
because you're good. You see, the young son, he had a list of things he did wrong. He said, let me tell you, I'm not worthy. See, he said, here's my list, and it's long, Father. Can you ever forgive that? But do you know what the problem with the good son was? He thought he didn't have a list. He didn't think he had one. And when the father told him that you're just as lost, he got up from the table and walked out. And see, that would be your normal response. But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit of God is moving in some elder sons as well as some younger sons in today and say, you know what, maybe it's my religiosity. Maybe it's my trying to be good and keep the commandments and, read, and do those things. See, see, it's keeping you from Jesus being your Lord and Savior. You're trusting in your church. You're trusting in your good works. You're trusting that somehow that your good things outweigh your bad things. See, you've been blinded to your lostness. But I pray that the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ would open your eyes and you'd realize that you're just as lost and in need of a Savior. I'm going to be here after the service for a few moments. Anytime during the week, you can call and make an appointment. I'll be glad to sit down with you and take you, take you to the Scriptures and show you how, though you are lost in Jesus, you can be found. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you that you save sinners like me. And whether we're the sinner that breaks all the rules or we're the sinner that keeps all the rules, we're lost. But you came to find us, to seek us, to save us. Would you do that again this morning? Would you seek and save the lost and do it by your grace and for your glory? And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.